Tonight, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. I want to share with you from God's Word for a few moments, and then Kivit asked me to share some testimonies of revival. And then before I do that, I want to point you to one of the greatest revivals in the Bible that I know of, and it's in the Old Testament. There's several revival, corporate revival and spiritual awakening uh, events that we see in the book of Acts, but here is probably the greatest one in the Old Testament, in my opinion. And it's found in Nehemiah chapter 8. As you're finding your place there, I do want to say thank you on behalf of our team and these young people for feeding us this week. It takes a lot of food to feed an army and to keep them going. Thank you so much for bringing in food. For those of you who have hosted, you have been such a blessing to us. You know, one of the great commands in the New Testament is to show hospitality, and that means to be a lover of strangers. And we came in as strangers to many of you, and thank you for loving on us. I just want to tell you, my heart is full tonight to get to come back to to an area where I grew up for around four years going to college, but to come alongside and minister uh, with your pastor this week, with Pastor Rick, he and I uh, went to college together. He got me through Greek class, or I would still be in Greek class, and, uh, and so many of you. And it's just been such a blessing. And as we were sitting there singing about the goodness of God, and I'm just reflecting over my life and just looking at what God has done year after year and how he's been so faithful, we are overwhelmed tonight with his goodness. And I also want you to know this. Uh, praise God that he's still working in the next generation. In every church we go into, I'll have someone come up to me who's older uh, in the faith, and they'll look at me and go, you will not believe how encouraging it's been for me this week to know that God is still alive and well and working in 18 and 19-year-olds. And I just want you to know something. All the stuff they shared with you tonight, none of that is scripted. I have no clue what they're going to share. That is an overflow of what God is doing in their life, and they mean every word of it. And I, that's where I about jump off the pew, and, and then I would scare all of you in. Because I just want to go, thank you, Jesus, that they're overflowing with your spirit and with the Christ life. And I pray that grows all the more. And I pray that for you and your church in these days. The day is drawing near. And the Bible says, though, as we see the day draw near, we should meet together all the more, stirring one another to good works and the faith. And tonight we want to close by doing just that. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 8. Many of you know this book well. I'm going to give you a very short context. The walls are up. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. What many thought was impossible, the God of the impossible took care of in 52 days. Those walls around Jerusalem had laid waste for 70 to 80 years, some theologians estimate. And people had walked over those walls all the time. These bricks that had laid ruin because of the judgment that had come across God's people. And though God had allowed his people to come back in three different waves to Jerusalem, they got their houses built, they got the temple built, but they kept stepping over those walls. The problem with that is in those days you had to have walls around your city or before you know it, an enemy invader would come in and take back over your city. And here's the thing, nobody cared. Nobody cared. They were God's chosen people. They served the one true God. They served Yahweh. He was the God of the impossible. He was the God who had led them by fire. He was the God who had led them through the Red Sea. But they had forgot the goodness and the works and the power and the majesty and the glory of their God. And they walked over those bricks every day and said, well, maybe one day, I don't know. And they settled for the land of mediocrity. Sadly, many churches in America have settled for the land of mediocrity. 
I just want to be honest with you. I'm not that old, but I'm getting older every day. And every day I look in the mirror and see more gray hairs. I, I just know this. Whatever days I got left, I do not want to waste them in the land of mediocrity. I have been saved for more. In fact, Jesus says, hey, I wish you wouldn't be cold, and I wish you wouldn't, uh, 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 well, how's he say it? Let me go back. Let me, let. He goes, I wish you were cold or hot, but don't you dare be lukewarm because that makes me want to literally vomit. And many American churches have settled for the middle of the road. Our doctrinal statement's good. Church services are still going. We do this, we do that. We've just lost our first love. And Jesus said, I'd rather you be cold or hot. And that's what had happened here with the people in Nehemiah. They kept walking over those bricks. And so one day, Hananiah, the brother of Nehemiah, came over to where Nehemiah was, working for the king, the king of Persia. And Nehemiah looked at Hananiah and said, hey, what's going on in the homeland? And Hananiah said, hey, look, the wall's still down. Nehemiah began to weep. The Bible says that Nehemiah wept and fasted and prayed for three to four months. He didn't get on Facebook and blast everybody. He didn't fuss and pitch a fit. He wept. You know, over the past several years, our nation is so divided, but just during COVID alone, I watched so many Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians take up arms on Facebook and blast everything they could get a hold of. And I started to ask myself, I wonder if we would make better progress if we started weeping again. Remember what the psalmist said? Rivers of water run down from my eyes because people in Winston-Salem do not keep God's law. Nehemiah wept for three to four months. He turned off the television and he fasted and he prayed and he wept. We don't even hear about that anymore. And after four months... He got on board with God's heart, and God laid upon Nehemiah's heart what God wanted to do to restore his people. Nehemiah went to the king, and the rest is history. God opened up doors where there seemed to be no open doors. The next thing we know, Nehemiah shows up, looks at a people that have been callous for decades. He said, hey, God wants to get these walls up. They said, let's rise up and build. And in 52 days, what had laid waste for 70 or 80 years was up in a month and a half. Here's what I take from that. God will do more with your church in 24 hours when we all get on board with him because it's his church than in years of us trying to do it our way. That was a cue for an amen. I'm leaving after today. You don't have to worry about those cues anymore, all right? That was a cue for a let it be so. And that's what happened with God's people. After those walls got up, the people realized, wow, you know what? Our problem wasn't just that the walls were broken, it's that our hearts have been broken. Our lives have been broken, and all of a sudden, they had revival. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square. Some theologians have suggested 20,000 of them got together with their children, and they got in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, all who could hear with understanding, on the first day of the seventh month. It's around October, November. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Here's what's incredible about this. The preacher, let's just pretend he's sitting in the house, 
It's Monday morning. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Monday morning, it's Sunday's over. And God's people here at Salem Baptist Church come and knock on the doors of Kivitt's house or camper. <laughs> Kivitt comes to the door and he sees the whole church standing out in front of the camper. I'm sorry, y'all okay? What's wrong? What did I do wrong? Sorry, I haven't even got a chance to check my emails yet. What went bad yesterday? Who's upset? Who's sick? What's wrong? And the whole group says, nothing's wrong. He goes, you got to be kidding. Then why are you all here? And this is what they say, go get your Bible. He says, what? Go get your Bible, preacher. Why do you want me to get my Bible? You preached yesterday, but we didn't get enough. Go get your Bible. Kivet falls over with a heart attack. <laughs> Hillary resuscitates him. He gets back up. He goes and gets his Bible. And he stands in front of all of you, and then here's what you do next that shows that revival's taking place. You say, Pastor, read from the Bible. Don't stop. There's not a time limit. God's not going to be done at noon. We're crucifying the clock. Read, read, read. We haven't got enough of God, and we don't want a mere dollar's worth. That's what just happened in the Bible. Ezra stood on a platform. The KJV uh, calls it a pulpit. It's where we get the word pulpit from. It was actually a platform. He stands up on a platform with all the religious leaders, and the Bible says he reads from the Bible from morning until noonday. Here's my first question. Did someone not tell him that church is only supposed to go an hour? I mean, we were in a church not long ago. The pastor warned me. He said, now listen, if you preach at all past noon, there's two people that are going to get up and leave at noon. They do it every Sunday. And I'm like, do they have to go to the bathroom at noon or something? He goes, I don't know. They just walk right out the door. And sure enough, I was preaching, and I went to like 12.02. And I'm telling you, on the dot, they stood right up, walked right out. And I, I almost wanted to stop the service and go, well, bye. <laughs> I'm like, where are you got to be? I mean, what is up with this? There is no verse in the Bible where God says, hey, but, hey, it's my church, but y'all run it however you want to, and I'm done at noon. I'm going to stop working at noon. He read from the Bible from morning to noonday, and here's the next miracle. The Bible says all of them were attentive to the book of the law. Nobody fell asleep. Nobody looked at their watch, and this includes their teenagers and their kids. My goodness, this is a miracle. Anybody excited yet? Look what happened in verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform or the pulpit. All the religious leaders stood with them. Look what happened in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book inside the, all the people, for he was standing above all the people on this pulpit or platform. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. By the way, when I've been picking on y'all, it's biblical. They said, let it be so, let it be so. And then they did something that Baptists don't do. They lifted up their hands. And then they did something Baptists don't do. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Then in verse 7, the religious leaders came down off the platform and notice what they found to be so important. In verse 8, they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense, and they helped everyone to understand the reading. So what many theologians expect happen is that they would read from portions of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. They would read for hours, and the people were soaking it all in. But then they would stop and take a break. And the religious leaders would come down off the platform. So Pastor Kibbett goes one way. Pastor Rick goes one way. Pastor Harper goes some way. Other pastors, other leaders go. Deacons go out, whatever. And they go up, and they break the people up into groups. So maybe here's a group of 1,000. Here's a group of 5,000. And they say, now listen— 
Pastor's been reading for the past hour from Genesis. What questions do you have? Do you understand? We want to make sure that everybody understands God's one intended meaning from His Word. We don't want you to go home today without understanding. God wants your mind. There's three simple things I want to show you real quick from this passage. If we're going to experience revival corporately or individually, there's three proper responses that we need from God's Word. And here's the first one. The mind must be informed. The battle is always in the mind. Many times we think the battle is around us, and it is, but the greater battle is what's going on inside of us. Many times I cannot change circumstances, but I can change the way I'm thinking. That's why the Bible says, let every thought be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Christ wants your every thought. Sadly, I grew up in churches at times where business meetings were like wars. In fact, I, I talked to a pastor a few weeks ago. He said, I would be so embarrassed if you'd come to our business meeting. He said, the way Christians acted. You know what those Christians forgot? That God wants every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Christ did not die for us to come and worship for a mere hour on a Sunday. Christ died and rose again to have all of us, and he wants every moment. He wants every thought. Now, you could go home and Google tonight just how many thoughts you've thought today, but it's in the thousands. And Jesus wants every thought captive to the obedience of him. Well, that's not going to happen unless we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that comes by the word of God. The religious leaders knew that if the people were really going to get on board with God and truly live again, which is revival, their minds were going to have to properly intake what God had said. But it didn't stop there. The second thing that happened is that their hearts were inflamed. It went from their minds to their hearts. Look with me in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, the religious leaders, who taught the people... They said to all the people, hey guys, this day is holy to the Lord. And then he went on to say, do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept. They were crying. And it doesn't say some. All the people, 20,000 of them, are weeping when they heard the words of the law. In verse 10, he then said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweets, send portions, to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Real quick, you say, what's going on here? What had happened is, is while Ezra was reading the Bible, they found out that the exact time period they were in was the time they were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. But they had neglected it since the days of Joshua. They had neglected it for decades. In other words, here's what happened. The Bible said one thing, and they had so neglected the Bible, they almost acted like what God had said to do was completely non-existent. You say, oh, we would never do that in a good Bible-believing church like ours. Oh, yeah, we would. Barna Statistics says that only 2% of believers share their faith, though the Bible tells us to go ye therefore and make disciples. What have we done? It's not that we needed more sermons. It's not that we didn't know. It's just that we chose to neglect it. That's what had happened with the Feast of Tabernacles. And all of a sudden, they began to weep. They fell under such conviction that they had so neglected God's word for years and that they were standing right in the midst of a month where they were supposed to be celebrating this feast to God and they had completely disobeyed. And what happened is, is God's word went from their mind to their heart. Why is this so important? I've preached thousands of sermons. I've, in fact, I was counting today. I preached, after tomorrow morning, I'll preach 22 times in two and a half weeks. <laughs> 
which makes me way more accountable to the sermons than you. And if I'm not careful, it's not that I don't have it here. It's that sometimes it just doesn't go from here to here. And what I love that happened in this passage is that once they understood what God said, they could not stay the same way. It went from head to inflamed hearts, and they wept. I know sometimes we're scared of emotions, and I get it. We're not supposed to be feeling-driven. But I just want to ask you, when was the last time you wept over conviction? When was the last time you wept quietly before the Lord or corporately over how the Spirit of God had gripped your heart? It's signs of revival. But here's the third thing. It moved from head to heart to the will. Look what happened next. The Bible says in verse 13, they came back on the second day, another miracle. And they brought all their families. The dads led the way. They came back. They said, preacher, get the Bible out again. Keep on preaching. We didn't get enough yesterday. And he preached some more and he read some more. And in verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, I'm going to stop right there because we're, we're running out of time, and I want to share with you some other things. Basically, here's what happened. This feast, they were to go out on the rooftop of their homes or out in their yard. They were to gather branches and basically make a tent or a hut. Their families were to go out and spend the night in this hut for that week. And the reason they were to do that is because as they sat in that hut and spent the night, the dads would look at their families and say, just like this hut is covering us, this temporary tent is covering us, this is a sign of what God did for our people in guiding us through the wilderness and out of the land of Egypt. And if God was faithful in the past, he will be faithful to us in the present, and God will also be faithful to us in the future. They were to go out and make these booths as silly as it was. I want, you, I want you to think about it for a moment. You've already got a house. You can go and sleep in your house. But God says, no, go outside in the front yard on the roof and make a hut. And I want you to stay in it for a week. And that hut is to remind you, that booth is to remind you that I am your God, your shelter, I'm your rock, I am faithful. But they had neglected to do this for decades. What I think is so amazing here with this revival is they actually did what the Word of God said. It went from mind to inflamed hearts, and then they did it. You know, I think sometimes in the American church, maybe we're sitting there in a sermon, we hear a sermon, we get convicted, and then, lo and behold, we might actually come forward. And we come forward and we cry and we're like, wow, I'm so broken. And then if we walk out those back doors just broken but not moving to obedience, we're going to become Pharisees. You see, it's more than just I understand it and I feel it. It's I must obey. Remember what James says? He says, you're only blessed if you hear and do. But watch out, church, for this great deception. You can substitute doing for hearing. And I think in the American church, we have so done that. We don't need to hear more sermons on evangelism, though that's important. We don't need to hear more sermons on getting out and sharing the gospel. We know. 
Yes, we, we're stirred by the Word of God. Yes, we're to be reminded. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we're educated beyond our obedience. And on this day, they heard it, they got it, they felt it, they embraced it, they did it, they followed through. And then look with me in verse 17. The Bible says, and there was very much great gladness. I love that. It's what Nate got up here and talked about a few moments ago. He said, God wants us to be holy, but God also wants me to be full of joy. There was great gladness amongst the people of God. The joy of the Lord was their strength. And I want you to think about it in your life. Every time you're walking in the Word of God, you're walking in the will of God, you're walking in the Spirit of God, there is joy. Because one of the great fruit of the Spirit is joy. Jesus said, these things I've told you so that your joy may be full. Man, I go to some churches, and like I picked on you a little bit on Sunday, not on you guys, but just talking about going to some churches, I'm like, is anybody happy here? He's alive. (laughs) You know, you can't lose your salvation, but like we talked about Sunday morning, you can sure lose the joy of it. God wants you to be filled with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. When God's people are serving Him, following His Word, are filled with His Spirit, and they're not divisive, and they're not cantankerous, and they're walking worthy of the gospel, and they're walking in unity, and they're walking in humility, and they're doing what God has told them to do by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, for the glory of God, here's one thing you can count on. That will be a people full of the joy of God. And that's what happened in this revival. I want to take the few minutes that we have left. I haven't done this in any church. I've I've shared a few stories, but your pastor is the only one that's asked me to share specifically. And I just want to take a few moments and share with you about a four and a half year period that I got to be a part of watching a true corporate revival in a local church. And while I had longed to see that my whole life, I finally got to be a part of it. And I just want to share with you a few things, and we'll close. Again, I have not really shared this anywhere. Kivit came up and specifically asked me to share, so I'm doing this at his request. But back in 2011, God called us from Roanoke, Virginia, and to go to Luray, Virginia. And that was the—I went from being a youth pastor to a senior pastor. It was my first senior pastorate, and I didn't even know anything about Luray. I had heard that there was a Luray Caverns, but I didn't know there was a town to go with it. How many of you ever been to Lorraine Caverns or Lorraine? Wow, that's amazing. I wasn't expecting that. That's almost as mind-boggling as how many of you have been to Denton. And um, I didn't know there was a town to go with it, and, uh, but God called us. And I, I got to that little town, and I grew up in a small town, Denton, and Lorraine's actually a little bigger than Denton, and, but not much bigger. About 5,000 people live in Lorraine, and there's only 21,000 people in the whole county. In fact, the county is one of the poorest counties in the state of Virginia. It's got about an 8.5% unemployment rate. Most of the men in the church drove over an hour hour and a half to get to work. They would drive up to D.C. and other areas because there just wasn't a lot of employment. A lot of farming, police officers, education, uh, teachers, but that was about it. You had to drive out of town to go to work. When I showed up, there were about 250 people in this church. It was an independent Baptist church. 
Their pastor had graduated from Appalachian Bible College. There were actually some people there from Piedmont and um, great folks. He had pastored there for over 30 years, and they had received faithful Bible teaching, and they were a solid group of people. But what was interesting is, is whenever we came, they were just ready. Like, I don't, I don't know what to say. Like, as I've told people some of the stories of what happened to the church, like, how did, how did you make that happen? I didn't make it happen. They were just ready. They were hungry for God, kind of like the way these people got in Nehemiah 8. They weren't divisive. They weren't cantankerous. The church was over 200 years old. So if you think your church has got some history, this one's got double the amount of history. But you know what? No one really came up to me and was like, you better do it this way, or you better do it that way, or blah, 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 or I own this church, or my granddad. No one did that. It was just, Pastor, we're so glad you're here. We want to see God work. And I'm like, amen. About six months went by. I was trying to learn how to be a senior pastor. I'd never done that part before. And I never will forget one night, I was in my office, it was a Saturday night, I was preaching through the book of Jonah, and the Holy Spirit just began to give me an unsettledness that the message I was going to preach on the next morning was not really the direction I should go. And I'm telling you, I really wrestled with it. It was Saturday night. I was learning to do funerals and all sorts of things, and pastor, we had a Christian school, uh, we, didn't have, we had a part-time school administrator. There was no associate pastor. So here I am pastoring a church of 250, and it's just me. It's me and a part-time principal, and I was burning it at both ends. And I didn't want to change the message at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. And I, In fact, I got up and walked out of my office, and, and I'm telling you, God just so burdened me with, hey, my word's not going to return void. You can go preach on what you'd plan to preach on tomorrow. But you haven't really abided with me this week. And I'd like to get your attention. I literally walked out of the church. I lived in the parsonage across the parking lot. And I turned around and walked back in. Sat down in my office at 8 o'clock in the night. I felt like an idiot. And I'm like, okay, Lord, what? What? And I started to pray. And God just really laid on my heart that I needed to preach a salvation message. And I really wrestled with that. I really wrestled with that because I'm like, Lord, I've talked to 250 people here. They're all very grounded. They, they know the gospel, but I'll do that. And I'm telling you, I started at 8 o'clock at night, and I finished at 7 a.m. the next morning. When I went to my office that night, it was dark. When I went home the next morning, it was daylight. I literally went home at 7 o'clock in the morning, stayed up all night, worked on this message entitled 10 Reasons Why People Think They're Going to Heaven. I walked in, laid down on the couch for an hour, got up, put my suit on, walked back across the parking lot, and we had church. And I was half delirious because I'd been up all night. I know I forget, I preached this sermon like Jonah going to Nineveh. I'm like, Lord, I don't even know why I'm preaching this. This is the biggest waste of time. I got done with the sermon, and up to those first six months, we hadn't seen anyone get saved. And I never forget, we called for the invitation, and I really wasn't expecting anything. And about that time, this lady got up. I'd never seen her before. She walked straight down, and she is just bawling. I looked at her and said, hey, what's your name? She goes, my name is Heather. She goes, I said, Heather, what can I do for you? She goes, i got to get saved. And I said, well, can I ask you a question? I said, where did you come from? She said, this morning, people have been inviting me to this church. She goes, my husband and I got in a fight about it. We were going to another church, and I kept telling him, we know we need to go to this church. He goes, I'm not going to that church. We're going to this church. She goes, we got in the biggest fight. 
She said, finally, he got mad, turned around in the middle of the highway, and here we are. And she goes, this is why I was supposed to be here this morning. I got to get saved. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. So I'm grabbing people like, hey, we got somebody who needs to get saved. Next thing I know, there's another lady walking up. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? What you need? She goes, I got to get saved too. And I'm like, really? And that's when it all started. Long story short, for the next four years, I had the privilege of baptizing 180, 185 people. Most of them were adults. It became the norm at church that if an adult didn't raise their hand saying they need to get saved on a Sunday, we started asking ourselves, what's wrong? People were getting saved left and right. I have never seen anything like it in my life. God's people begin to expect. God's people begin to take the prayer meetings really seriously. God's people started getting their sin right with God. In our church, if the least little bit of division popped up, we nipped it in the bud, like Barney Fife says, very quickly. Humbly, lovingly, and in grace, because we didn't want anything to quench or grieve the Spirit. People would show up to church, and literally before the message would even happen, they were wanting to come forward and talk to someone because the presence of God amongst the people was so powerful that people were getting convicted even before I got up to preach. In fact, I asked my wife this afternoon, I said, hey, I'm going to tell a few stories about Mount Carmel. I said, what would you share? She goes, tell them about how people would show up for church and not even know why they were there. That happened four or five times. I would meet a visitor. I'm like, hey, why are you here? And they would look at me and go, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? One guy looked at me and said, I got off work this morning and I just started driving towards your church and pulled in the parking lot. And I'm like, well, that's neat. And he goes, and what? I'm like, and what? He goes, I don't know. You tell me. Now, I know I've just scared some of you half to death, but I graduated from that school over there. I'm as independent Baptist, fundamental as they come. All right? I'm not not out to lunch. I'm just telling you what happened. God began to work greatly through people. There were some police officers in the church And uh, there was about five police officers when I showed up. Four and a half years later, there were 22. God got a hold of the law enforcement officers, and they began to have a revival, so to speak, at the sheriff's department and the town police department. Police officers were winning other police officers to the Lord. They were having devotions. They were having Bible studies together. The sheriff ended up joining the church, and he got so burdened. He came to me one Sunday. He said, Pastor, he goes, I'm so tired of locking people up but then turn around and re-arresting them a few weeks later. He says, let's do something about it. I said, Sheriff, what do you want to do? He said, let's start a post-release ministry. So we rented out a building about four or five miles from the church, and, and, and the joke around our county, because it was only 20,000 people. There were only 5,000 people in the town. The joke around our county was, hey, if you come to Page County and you get in trouble, they'll lock you up on Thursday and bring you to post-release ministry next week and preach the gospel to you on Tuesday. It's a beautiful sight. Public school teachers started coming. Though we had a Christian school, and, we, and our Christian school was, you know, God was blessing. But God got a hold of some public school teachers, and they began to share with other public school teachers. And they started educator Bible studies in our church. Next thing I know, 15 to 20 public school teachers are in this church, and three or four principals. And God was opening up the doors in the public schools. One man walked up to me one Sunday. He said, Mark, he said, I have never, ever seen God work so much amongst a group of people. And God is so working in my life. And he says, though I'm 55 years old, I've been saved for 40 years. He goes, I don't want to waste my life. He said, Mark, every time I open up the Bible and read about orphans, or widows, I weep. 
He goes, what do you think God wants to do? I was like, I don't know, but he's putting something on your heart, kind of like Nehemiah's. Next thing I know, he started a ministry called Living River Ministry, and he got a bunch of men together from our church, and he said, I have a burden for fatherless children. He said, they're all over this county. He said, rise up, O men of God. We're going to start praying for fatherless children. We're going to start going to their houses and praying over them at night. We're going to start helping the poor and the widows, and we're going to start rescuing children out of the bondage of drugs and the epidemic of, of, of darkness going on in our county, and that ministry is going on to this day and thriving. One lady came up to me one Sunday. She was, I don't know, 65, 66 years old. Wonderful lady, godly lady. And what I loved about this is the senior adults were as on fire as the young people. She walked up to me one Sunday. She goes, Pastor Mark, she said, you know the one CVS in Luray? I'm like, yep. She goes, every time I walk in there, she goes, God just grips my heart for the ladies that work in that CVS. She goes, I can't hardly get my prescription filled without weeping over the, the employees in the CVS. She goes, you know what I'm going to do? I said, what are you going to do? She goes, I'm going to start a Bible study at my house and invite all the ladies from CVS to my Bible study. She goes, but Pastor Mark, I got a question for you. She said, they only get off work at 6 o'clock on Sunday nights. Do you care if I miss church to do that? And I'm like, well, you might as well because everybody's, you know, misses for other reasons anyhow. So you might as well go ahead and witness. And so, so, so she started this Bible study. And true story, first Sunday night, they all showed up at her house. One of them was an atheist. One of them was a lesbian. None of them were Christian. All she did was start praying, walked into a CVS, handed them a flyer saying, I'm going to have a Bible study at my house and I'll feed you. And they all show up. She had better, she had 100% attendance. She had better attendance than we ever had for church. And they did it for eight straight weeks, never missed a night. By the end of the time, they had heard the gospel, and, and, and Judy began to share with them, hey, our Bible study's coming to an end. I want to invite you to the church. The women began to weep. They said, don't stop the Bible study. No one's ever told us the Bible before. Oh, and by the way, we were over in the hair salon right next door to CVS the other day, and we told the women in there, and none of them are Christians. We told them what you've been doing. They want you to start a Bible study for them. This was becoming the norm. I'll just share a few other ones. I'm almost done. A lady in the church, one of the most godly ladies I know, she's... I don't know, close to 70 years old. She played the piano. I I love her. She taught at our Christian school. She's about this tall. Well, I'm kind of high up here, but she's about this tall. She came to me one Sunday. Now, I'm getting ready to scare at least half of you. But I'm leaving tomorrow, so it's great. (laughs) She came up to me. She goes, Pastor Mark, I got a burden for somebody. She goes, you know, I work at the Crisis Pregnancy Center downtown, the Christian Crisis Pregnancy Center. I said, yeah. She goes, I just found out about a couple who lost their only child. Um, it, was a, it was a miscarriage. I said, really? She goes, I got such a burden for their souls. She goes, but here's the catch. She goes, you know the one tattoo parlor in town? I'm like, yeah. She goes, uh, he owns that. I said, oh, that's good. That's interesting. Never been in a tattoo parlor before. She goes, will you pray for their salvation? I said, Sure. I said, what are you going to do? She goes, well, I'm going to pray. And that's, that, that was the spirit of the church. Everybody was praying about everything. She prayed for two weeks, came back to me, and then they would come up with the craziest ideas. So, so just like the one lady just saying, I'm just going to invite everybody to a Bible study at my house, and you're like, I don't think that's going to work, and it worked because it was backed up by prayer. Here's what this lady did. She goes, I'm going to bake them cookies and take them to their house. Wow, go get them. 
Sure enough, she went and knocked on their door, backed up by prayer, gave them the cookie, said, I love you, I'm a Christian, I heard about what you're going through, you let me know any way I can help you. They were like, wow, we really appreciate that. She came back and told me, one day I'm walking through town with my wife, and we had another couple walking with us, and all of a sudden I looked down at that tattoo parlor, and the God just impressed upon my heart, you know what's going on in there, why don't you go get involved in on it? Now, by the way, before I scare everybody to death, God's not speaking audibly to me, we're just... The, I'm being led by this impression to go do the Great Commission, okay? And I looked down at that tattoo parlor, and I thought, Lord, I've never been in a tattoo parlor in my life, and I don't think I'm going in there today. And, and the Lord just kept pricking my heart. Well, you prayed for him, but why don't you go do something? So I looked over at my friend who was a Christian. He's a great big guy. I said, uh, hey, Scott, I said, you see that tattoo parlor down there? He goes, yeah. I said, we're going to go in there. He says, what in the world for? I said, well, I don't know, but we'll find out. I said, but you protect me. He goes, okay. <laughs> True story. I walk in tattoo bar. I have no idea what this guy looks like. I walk in. I'm telling you, this six foot seven tall, six foot seven tall giant of a guy. I mean, he's huge. Stands up and towers over me. And I'm like, hey. And uh, I was like, um, I'm looking for the owner. He goes, I'm not it. And then he points over to this other guy. And this guy, he's about this tall. Sitting behind a desk, I feel much better about things. And I walk up to him. Well, I can tell I'm kind of dressed pastorally. And, and he's looking at me going like, you don't look the part. And I, all of a sudden I realize he thinks I'm here to complain about something. So he got real defensive. And I'm like, man, this thing's already going down. This is messing up. So I walk up to him. He stands up. He looks at me about right here. He goes, what can I do for you? I said, hey, hey, hey. I said, hey, no, no all, 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 all is fine. Everything's good. I said, um... I'm a pastor, church up the road. I said, I heard you and your wife been going through a hard time. And uh, I said, I just want to let you know, I've been praying for you. And if there's anything we can do for you, would you let me know? I don't forget, he looked up at me. He goes, you're a what? I said, I'm a, I'm a Baptist pastor. He goes, you got to be kidding. I was like, nope, sure am. He goes, and you want to do what? I said, well, I've been praying for you. And I hear y'all been going through a hard time. He stopped and he looked down and he looked back up at me. He said, can I shake your hand? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I stuck my hand out and he goes, you're the first pastor that's ever had the nerve to walk in here. I was like, well, if you only knew what it took to get me in here. <laughs> Guess who showed up to church on Sunday? Stephen Bambi. That's his wife's name, Bambi. Guess who I baptized a few months later? Stephen Bambi. Guess who adopted three kids? Stephen Bambi. Guess who put those three kids in our Christian school? Stephen Bambi. Guess who started a Bible study in their tattoo parlor? You know, they didn't teach us how to do that at Piedmont. <laughs> Here's the class on how you start a Bible study in the tattoo parlor. Never got that one. Guess who came to me one day and said, Pastor, as I'm growing in Jesus, I got some stuff hanging up in my tattoo parlor that, that, that doesn't please God. I'm going to start taking it down. I'm like, amen. Guess who kept clearing the track racks out that were all dusty in the back of the church where the saints who had been saved for years would pass by those every week? Guess who kept clearing them back, clearing them out to where we kept having to refill the track racks? Steve. He was witnessing to people like crazy. And then one Wednesday night he comes in, he goes, Pastor, I need some help. He goes, I got to run something by you. He said, today I had a Satan worshiper come in to get a tattoo. I'm like, you know, all in a day's work for you. And, and he's like, let me know if I did it right. He said, I got him in the tattoo chair, and, and this tattoo I was going to do, he was going to have to sit still for two hours. And so I was sitting there thinking, how do I share Jesus with this guy? He said, Pastor, you know that Christian movie, Courageous? Y'all know the Kendricks brothers? 
Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Y'all kind of, I can't tell when y'all are doing this. this He said, I stuck that in, made him watch the whole thing. He said, did I do it right? I said, I think you did okay. Final story. That little church of 250 grew to about 550. (laughs) And a little town of 5,000 people. We were constantly, we had, to, we had to take out all the pews. Of course, that scared everybody half to death. And the reason is, we couldn't hold everybody. So we put in chairs so we could get more people in there. We went to two services. We had an overflow room. We were doing everything we can, could to keep people from having, to, there were times there were so many people coming, they would turn around in the parking lot because there wasn't a place to come in. People getting saved left and right, new believers. But the secret behind it all was prayer and people getting right with God and walking in the love of Christ. And I'll tell you the other one, my wife's not here tonight. She's been under the weather for the past two days and she apologizes greatly. She's, she's just been sick. And, but my wife prayed around that church every night. She just did prayer laps around that church. My wife started a random acts of kindness campaign to where she mobilized people in our church to just do random acts of kindness all over the county, give gifts to people behind the counter, or if you were checking out at Walmart, give a gift to the teller and share the gospel with them. There were so many people spreading gifts all over the county that Walmart had to change their policy to where no one that worked there could receive gifts from somebody from the public. People were buying each other's meal in the McDonald's line. I mean, it was just crazy. It just just flowed. And I close with this, and pastor's going to come. It was the night before Easter Sunday. And uh, I grabbed my son and the youth pastor, and I said, we need to pray. I said, the people have invited over 2,000 people to church on Sunday in this little town of 5,000. That's how excited the people were. They had gotten out over 2,000 hand-delivered invitations to people. And it was a Saturday evening, and I thought, oh, Lord, we got to pray. And you know what? And I'll just say this. As much exciting stuff was going on at that church, I wanted a prayer meeting where we prayed and didn't leave till like, God let us leave. And I knew that even though all these things were going on in our church that were so good, I couldn't get people to do that. You know, people are, they're only going to pray for about an hour, and they want to talk for half of it. You see, I can say what I want to, and I'm leaving tomorrow. But I, I wanted like a big time prayer meeting. So I looked at the youth pastor. I said, hey, you're on. By that time, we'd gotten a youth pastor. And I said, hey, listen, you're going to come and pray with me for several hours at the church. And you got to because you're on salary. <laughs> then I looked at my two sons. Actually, it's both my sons. And I said, you're coming over here, too. And you got to do it because I'm your dad. I said, here's what we're going to do. I said, we're going to walk into the church. And I said, we're going to lay down on the altar and we're going to pray and pray and pray and we're not getting up until we all can confirm that God's good with us being done. Because see, so many times we, we just tell God what to do. We're like Martha. Hey Jesus, tell Mary to get in here and do, and she's setting the agenda. I'm like, I don't want a prayer meeting where we're setting the agenda. I want God to set the agenda. Long story short, we prayed for over three hours confessing sin, calling on the promises of God, trusting God. And God just so overwhelmed our hearts. 
Jesus, they have invited over 2,000 people to church. Surely, surely you could fill up this church two or three times over. Not for numbers, but so that people can hear about the resurrected Christ. At that point, our church had not had two services before, and this Easter Sunday was going to be the first time. And we got done praying that night, and I went home, came out the next morning, looked at the parking lot, and it was full. And I thought, wow, they all came to the early service. I walked in, I started noticing all these people I'd never seen before, hands going up left and right. The next service that packed out, overflow room, that day in a little town of 5,000 people, 750 people came to church. 16 people trusted Christ, and one of them was a man who had told his wife, who had gotten baptized a few weeks before, he said, I am never coming to that church, and I'm staying away from that preacher. But we so prayed for that guy that night. He showed up at church. He was one of the first hands that went up. He was under conviction. He called me that day after church. He said, Pastor, you got to meet me at the office. I need Jesus. That was the culture of our church. It was the norm. God led us away from there, not because of anything bad. It was all going good, and God led us away to go to a different church. And while there were good things that happened in that church, I've never seen anything like it since. My whole point is this. We're not living for an experience, and we're not living for something that God chose to do with this church or that church in New York or this church over here. My whole point in sharing this with you tonight is, are you on board with what God wants to do through your church? Actually, I'm going to take all that back. Let me rephrase that. Are you on board with what God wants to do with his church called Salem Baptist? Because as soon as you and I get on board, watch out. He will show up and show off his glory for our good and the good of others. Pastor, would you come?